Well, if we haven't met yet, my name's Aaliyah. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm very excited about today. Um, we've got kind of a heavy topic. So we're talking about abuse and shame, but we are talking about the Holy Spirit. That's the series that we're in. We're in a series called Receive the Holy Spirit. And here's one thing that I know that the Spirit wants to do. He wants to heal. You guys, the Spirit of God wants to heal. So to get us there today, we're actually going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And this is a story generally referred to as the woman at the well. So what we discover here in this text is that the Spirit of God is no longer limited to a building or a certain race or a gender or a location. Um, but now the Spirit dwells and empowers all who call upon the name of Jesus. This is something to celebrate. So just for today, uh, instead of reading our entire text up front, we're actually going to weave it throughout our time together. Um, and in a minute, before we pray, I'm just going to ask that you be fully present in the this, in this story. There's something that God has for us in this story about this woman. So I've got three great kids, um, and my middle guy, Jude, a couple weeks ago, he wanted to watch a movie together. Um, so great, we're doing it. And then all of a sudden during the movie, he pauses it, and he looks at me, and he's like, um, do you know what one of my pet peeves is? And I was like, oh gosh, I didn't even know you knew what that was. Um, yeah, what's one of your pet peeves? And he looks at me, and he's like... Um, when people are on their phones during movies. <laughs> yeah, he stared deadpan at me and my phone, and I was like, oh, okay, called out. I'm going to watch this terrible movie with you. Um, <laughs> but he was right. I mean, he just wanted me to be fully present with him in the moment, watching what he was watching. And I often, to be totally honest, approach Scripture in this way. I give it half of my attention. I'm thinking about what I need to get done during the day, and I'm kind of not all there. Um, if I'm the only one, like, say a prayer for me, and please be kind, like, don't judge me. But um, I think that we all can be distracted when we approach Scripture. So I love what God does. He gives us so many kinds of scripture to keep us engaged, and this one is a story. So as much as you can, if you can think about just the details of this story, um, the setting, it gives us a lot of little clues as to what's going on. So before we pray, um, we're actually just going to go ahead and put up a slide. Yeah, so this is a well. This is actually a well that's in the same geographical location of the story that we're reading. And so look at this. This is where Jesus chose to go. A lot of times, like when I was little, I would read these stories and it was like this beautiful Anglo Jesus sitting by a clean well. Um, but really looking at this, we realize he was like God became flesh. So he could sit somewhere like this to talk to a woman who needed to hear what he had to say. So as much as you can, keep this in mind. And if you can, just take a deep breath. Sometimes we call this imaginative prayer, where we enter scripture as well as we can with what we know. So Father, would you come? Spirit, would you show us the areas that you want to heal, the things you want to shed light on because you know what to do with them? We thank you that you became flesh so that you could do normal things like talk to us in our own context. Amen. 
Okay, so if you can follow along in your Bible or on your phone, whatever works for you, it's fine. Uh, John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, so already John is giving us some really important cultural cues. Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and Samaritans, they were part Jew um, and part Gentile, and neither of those groups liked them, not at all. I guess you could compare them to like half-bloods for like my Harry Potter fans in the room. Yeah, I was homeschooled, but I watched it when I was an adult, so. (laughs) So why wouldn't a Jewish rabbi pass through Samaria? I'm glad you asked. Um, Jesus considered Samaritans, or Jews, not Jesus, I'm so sorry, Jesus. Um, Jews considered Samaritans an inferior people group because at the time, Yahweh was not the only God worshipped in Samaria. And because of their race, they were seen as less. Jewish rabbis would have wanted to avoid the risk of defilement almost at all costs. They wanted to remain pure even in their travels. But not Jesus. So when we read that it says he had to go through Samaria, we know it's not because it was the only route, but we know it's because he had ministry to do there. You guys, this is so like Jesus. He is always down to inconvenience himself for the people that society considers inconvenient. Even though at this point in the story, Samaria was a land marked by defilement, it's important to remember that it was previously a land that was actually rich with God's history. God's people and and Jesus just being there in this space at Jacob's well has the ability to remind us how God stays faithful even when his people don't. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. So the time of day. It's noon, which might seem like a small, weird detail, Um, but it's important to know that customary for the time, women of the town would come and they'd get water for the day all together. This would either be early in the morning or late at night to avoid the hot um, heat that was the midday. So what's this woman doing alone in the middle of the day when it's hottest, getting water? It's a commonly accepted that this small fact would show that she preferred to come at a time when she could avoid people. Her shame kept her isolated. Verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. So Jesus is alone, and I love that Jesus engages her in a way that's so disarming. He asks her for water. Now, this was not Middle Eastern culture. This was a patriarchal society. um, And as a man, you would not address a woman in public um, unless she was your wife. 
So it's no wonder that the disciples, when they heard about this, were shocked at Jesus. As we read about the life of Jesus, it's actually what we see. He does this a lot. Um, He kind of has this way of disarming people by asking them for something that he wants. Have me over for dinner. Hey, can you get me some water? Hey, disciples, let's get in a boat so you can take me across the the seas while I nap. I think he's kind of onto something. He's taking naps and eating food and getting, getting water out of people and making them feel like they know him. But the woman is the one who actually points out the awkwardness of the situation. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. What do you think her tone was when she asked this? This is something that we can't really know. Um, Maybe shocked? Scared, angry, maybe just surprised. We're not sure. But what we do know is that Jesus engages and asks for water from a woman. Strike one. A woman whose race was considered inferior. That's strike two. A woman whose reputation was compromised. That's strike three. And he did all of this in public. There were three culturally unacceptable barriers that Jesus was breaking through by simply giving up his power to have a basic need met. Jesus is thirsty. Now this is a hyperlink moment and it points us to the cross. And the spirit does this often in scripture. He's either pointing forward or pointing back in the biblical narrative just to show us how it's connected. It's one of my favorite things that he does. And in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the God, the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, we're starting to see that Jesus' whole purpose in engaging the woman is to orient this conversation to God. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I love that Jesus is rolling out this giant promise. Um, But the woman is just thinking about how nice it would be to avoid seeing people. All my introverts in the room, you're like, yeah, praise the Lord. But in all seriousness, it's, it's more than that for her. It's shame that keeps her desiring isolation. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Now this is interesting because in the next verses coming up, we find that Jesus actually knows the answer to the questions that he's asking. 
So God actually does this really often. Our first example of this is right at the beginning of the biblical narrative, Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they weren't supposed to have, God doesn't strike them down. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't even tell them that what they did was wrong. He asks a series of questions that I think he knows the answer to. Why does he do this? Because God invites confession. He knows that holding sin alone and in secret is a heavy burden to carry. And he offers this gift of confession that serves as a means to lay down our sin and shame at his feet. He knows what to do with it, so he asks for it. This is where the Spirit begins the work of healing. And when Jesus asks her this question, she tells the truth. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. She's probably really glad she told the truth just now. (laughs) But Jesus lets her know that he sees her fully. There's nothing hidden from him. And at this this point in the story, I I think we have to pause and call out a really bad, unfortunate, and, and honestly misogynistic reading of the story. I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing this story taught as the woman was the problem. She was loose, she was dirty, she was sexually deviant. She's to blame for having five different husbands. But that's specifically not how her culture worked. Um, Abused women were able to divorce their husbands because Moses gave a law in Exodus 21.11. But we know that laws don't change hearts. And so in this culture, that actually wasn't almost ever what happened. Only the man could divorce his wife and not the other way around. So we're not told if one or more of her husbands died or if they left her, Um, but what we can confidently say is that a woman in this time that had five husbands was not the problem. She had certainly been the abused. Jesus' response to her is interesting. He doesn't call her to repent or he doesn't tell her to go and sin no more. He, He absolutely does this to other people in scripture. This is something that Jesus does but not to this woman. In fact, you can't find a response from Jesus that matched the culture, actually. Uh, Dorothy Day says it well. Perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this. There never has been another, a prophet, a teacher, who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, oh, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. 
There's no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. I'd venture to even say this. The reason why people mislabel this woman as the problem is the same reason why sexual abuse is so rampant in the American church today. Misogyny is real. The abuse of authority is real. We're currently in a time when the spirit is moving and exposing egregious sin and uplifting those who have been abused and silenced. Um, I don't know if you follow evangelical news very much. I do. Weird. But a year ago, um, the Southern Baptist Convention, it's a denomination that has nearly 14 million members. It's 47,000 churches. It's the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S., voted in new leadership. And they finally, this new leadership finally responded to allegations that had been going on for 20 years. And the new leadership sought a third-party investigation that exposed legally documented sexual abuse done by hundreds of leaders and pastors who were able to keep going in their ministry oftentimes. And the church largely sought to hide this for 20 years. 20 years of abuse hidden. Not only abuse, but the survivors were belittled, blamed, and not believed. But a year ago, the SBC agreed to follow the recommendations of this third-party investigator. At their own expense, they're paying out millions of dollars in reparations. They're accepting public condemnation. They're doing the work of repentance and lament um, for many of the leaders. And we rejoice at that. We really do. It's hard, but we rejoice. Because, you guys, God is not slow. God is slow to anger, but it doesn't mean never. He's a God of righteousness and justice. Now, this is the hard part. This is not just an SBC problem. Um, see, we're part of the global bride of Christ. Church family Christ is cleansing his bride, and while this is painful, we have to rejoice at this opportunity for individual and corporate confession, repentance, and lament. In this cleansing work, if we love the body of Christ, we partner with him when sin is exposed. It's a hard thing, but we rejoice. We don't get the luxury of echoing the prayer of the proud Pharisee who said, thank you, God, that I'm not like this man. We champion and we pray and we fast and we seek the spirit and we partner with organizations that do the work of justice as God's uplifting the, the abused and the marginalized in the global church. So Jesus is here in this story specifically tearing down abusive systems and lifting up this woman in public and building up our trust in the good, true, beautiful authority of the Spirit. Jesus knows authority abuse is real, and he goes after it. The real thing is all the sweeter Jesus uses his authority to bring healing. I want to I say it again. Jesus uses his authority to bring healing. Whether this was sin done by the woman at the well or to her, 
she was marked by shame. And because of this, she'd rather spend her days avoiding the society that had rejected and discarded her. The enemy does not care what road leads us to shame and disconnection from God. Sin chosen by us of our own will, or sin that's no fault of our own and has left us a victim, as long as the sin leaves us isolated, the enemy has accomplished his goal. So Evan gave us a beautiful framework for where we are to sit as followers of Jesus uh, in light of the news from Friday, the overturning of Roe. The church has done incredible work. I do wanna say that again. The church has done incredible work through foster care and adoption and pregnancy resource centers and, and support for mothers. I've witnessed it firsthand and been a part of it. I remember the church I grew up in as a kid, we had um, a doctor with a successful practice, Dr. Sison, um, and he felt called to give it up and open a clinic in the worst corner of Portland. It's called Rockwood, where there were just no resources for these people. And what compelled him to this is his love for mothers who needed not just health care for themselves and their kids, but who also needed classes on how to be good moms and support and childcare when they needed a break. He took a bunch of other doctors and nurses and receptionists and all these people gave up their life to open this clinic, to put their money where their mouth was. This is, this is something that I've seen the church do. It's a blessing. But I've also seen the church react badly and turn away mothers and deny responsibility and place the appearance of morality over the compassionate justice that is Jesus. So we sit in this intersection that many refer to as the already and not yet. We wait for the fullness of the presence of God where tears are no more and the broken systems of the world are replaced with the perfect ruling and reigning of King Jesus. And while we wait, we see legislation and abortion have both tried to serve as terrible tools that aim to give solutions to a deeply broken world. Neither are the answer. The Spirit compels us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a broken world. The Spirit wants to bring healing in ways far greater than we can imagine. And here's how we know God wants to, us to partner with him in this healing work. In verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's, she's once again thinking too small. And this is of no fault of her own. I think we all do this when we pray. She's getting caught up in what, the te what temple is right and, and where she should be, but it's about to get real. Jesus says in verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when we, you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus does dignify her question with an answer. And simultaneously, he doesn't avoid the harsh truth. Yes, the Jews will be the ones to usher in salvation with the coming of the Messiah. They worship Yahweh alone. But then he offers so much more. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. So Jesus is quickly moving this conversation into the deep, transforming truth of who he is. And he's referencing this huge shift that's coming. So um, like many people, I've read this story most of my life, but I missed something massive. And, and I did want to share a little bit of my story and journey with the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. And just kind of a heads up, God did shift me from trauma to healing, from abuse to the proper use of the gifts of the Spirit, from fear of the Holy Spirit to this deep love and desire for everything about who He is. So I, I grew up functionally cessationist, and that's a fancy way of saying that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. They ceased with the apostles about 2,000-ish years ago. So you could say um, that my trinity was Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. I knew Jesus. I loved Jesus. I wanted to spend my life pointing people to him. I mean, he performs miracles, and he comes near to the lowly, and he brings social justice, and he empowers marginalized people who wouldn't like him. Don't answer that. I didn't think about the Spirit really ever. I grew up um, in a loving churches who didn't pursue the Spirit beyond reading Scripture. Um, but with friends, I did visit a few charismatic churches with friends, and, and through the years, None of those were positive experiences. That's not everyone's story, but that is mine. Now, this is a little heavy, so I'm going to tell you how it ends first. The Spirit has used my current charismatic friends and churches to do a deep healing work in me. Um, but there are situations that are spiritually abusive, and we need to acknowledge them. So here's my story. When I was nine, um, in a dark room with loud music, a bunch of elementary kids were told to come forward and to receive the gift of tongues if they felt the Spirit leading. Okay, I didn't. And as the minutes went on and I was one of the few kids that hadn't gone forward, the speaker intensified and he was saying, if you can't hear the Spirit calling you forward right now, you're a child of the devil and you're headed to hell. I was nine. I still didn't go forward. Then four church leaders surrounded me and they laid hands on my head and my shoulders and my back and they started praying that demons would leave me. Nothing happened, I'm happy to say. I don't think there were any demons there. Um, but it was really scary. And I remember crying a little bit and I prayed because I knew who Jesus was. And then they were kind of mad and they marched me to the back of the room and they demanded, they were like, write your address and phone number down. Um, and I was just like, um, no. If that like tells you anything about what I was like as a child. <laughs> Luckily. So I, I honestly, after that, I was little, I never wanted to go back to a charismatic church again. I knew that this wasn't the spirit. And so when I heard teachings from my context that the gifts were not for today, it resonated deeply. The God that I knew was good and safe. And this was not that. So I disregarded the gifts of the Spirit 100%. So 
So quite a few years later, um, I was working at a coffee shop with a really great girl, and one day she came in, and she had a black eye. And I said, oh my gosh, what happened? And she was like, oh, it's the funniest story. Last night we were at church, and we were drunk in the spirit, and my husband just punched me straight in the face. And I just could not believe it. This is not the spirit that I knew. And it just reiterated what I believed once again, that the Spirit had inspired Scripture and beyond that was just something that people used to blame for the ways that they wanted to get weird and be spiritually abusive. But in the middle of my college years, um, I started to really wrestle with God, like you do. We're a college church, I know. Um, I had some textbook answers that worked but those answers weren't holding up for me anymore. Deconstruction, or in the past we used to call this loss of faith, was looking really nice. So I decided to go um, to a small Bible college that I could afford, that I'd never heard of, and I needed more theology, and I just prayed and I asked that God would give me the answers I was looking for, because I couldn't keep going in the same direction. But the answer that I got was so much different than what I expected. I went to reason my way out of doubt, but I was greeted with a compassionate call to repentance for my denial of the third person of the Trinity. This is something beautiful that happens. God calls us to repentance, and in that, he offers healing. Sometimes we separate these things, but we can't. There's a pastor there one night, and he was speaking about the person and the work of the Spirit and all the things that he does, and I don't know what it was, but something in that moment washed over me, and I felt genuine sorrow and hope. And, and he gave me this highlight reel of my life that played, sometimes we call this a vision, and it was the Spirit showing me all the times it was him who had worked in my life. Those times when I had the ability to loudly and deeply weep alongside people who had experienced years of sexual abuse and rape. The Bible calls us to weep with those who weep. We don't despair like the world, though, because of the hope we've been given in Jesus. And when the grief is too heavy, the Spirit does this beautiful thing. He comes and He wants to heal and give the gift of lament the kind of cleansing lament that Romans 8 talks about. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And the Spirit showed me just countless prayers of healing for myself and others and provision for things that seemed impossible and wisdom while reading scripture and discernment at times that I knew it didn't come from me prayers that combated spiritual darkness that I could actually see on missions trips. I could honestly go on and on. This is what the Spirit does. He reveals himself. And something broke open in me in that moment. And the pastor actually called. He said, hey, anybody who wants to come forward and receive, like, oil on your head as this healing work of the Spirit. Whoever wants to receive the Holy Spirit, come forward. And it was this beautiful moment that I went forward because I I felt the prompting of the Spirit, not because of fear. I approached God for theological answers, 
and he greeted me with a person. And it's a person who Jesus refers to as a helper better than himself. And I find myself each year wanting more and more of the Spirit. And there's one more thing. I love that my foundation is Scripture. I love the authority of Scripture. It's incredible. But I ran into one gaping problem. My denial of the gifts of the Spirit, it's nowhere in Scripture. Paul talks about this everywhere. Just the list of gifts um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 alone, I realized I had kind of cherry-picked the gifts of the Spirit. Like wisdom? Yeah, sure. That seems safe. Prophecy? Eh, let's like maybe leave that with the apostles. I think that was their job. We're not meant to be churches made up of, of some gifts and not others. The Apostle Paul says that we're to be the fully functioning body of Christ. Every single part is vital. Imagine only having space for one gift. It would look like having a body made entirely of feet. Seems weird. So that's a whole other teaching. Evan's going to take us um, to the gifts of the Spirit next week. I'm so excited about it. I'm so grateful for the tender, long-suffering person and work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Friends, don't throw away any part of the Spirit because of another human's abuse in his name. So when the woman asked which temple was the one to worship at, Jesus answered her that a day was coming when all would worship in spirit and in truth. The plan that this triune God had in mind was that, the, that he would no longer be contained to a temple. God always finds a way to draw near to his people. But now since we're covered in this salvation that could only come from the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, we've been entrusted to be these walking, talking, earth-cultivating temples of the Holy Spirit who get to experience his presence no matter where we are. As we come to the end of this story, there's a few things I want to leave you with. This interaction shows us God's heart toward us. And it shows us that he wants us to represent him to a hurting world. This um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This was interesting. Last night I was just awake kind of late, praying about this teaching, talking about abuse. I think is hard. Everybody has their own story. Not necessarily what I said, but I think there can be um, times when, when whatever your story is is coming to mind and God wants to heal it. And um, God brought 2 Corinthians 5. And then today, when I got here for pre-gathering prayer, I walked up to a circle, and um, Brie Golden said, I just feel that the Spirit is speaking today, 2 Corinthians 5, and he's calling us to be people who are reconcilers. And it's just this confirming kind thing that the Spirit doesn't need to do. He doesn't need to just kind of confirm in our souls what he's speaking, but he does it. So this is, this is what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, 
and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is, this is our charge as the people of God to be these temples. We've been made Christ's ambassadors to reconcile a broken world to a good father. And we can do this because we find out in this story that the spirit of God would no longer be limited to a building or a race or a gender or a geographical location, but dwelling and empowering and working through all that call upon the name of Jesus. This is the spring that flows to eternal life. <clears throat> and here's where she realizes who she's talking to. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, she's redeemed. And what was once her source of shame is now the proof of her freedom. She goes on to evangelize her entire town. She's the first woman evangelist. The woman who couldn't bring herself to see people during chores <laughs> now lives a life completely in the light, bringing everyone along with her to experience this incredible Messiah. We're so thankful for the gift, what God does through people, what, what Satan meant for evil, God means for good. He changes our stories. So would you stand with me? We're gonna worship here in a few minutes. <clears throat> but I just wanna take a minute, if you could just open up your body posture, put your hands out if you want to. We wanna invite the spirit to do this healing work that he did for this woman. So Father, we thank you that this is what you do, that you bring your healing work, that you ask for confession, that you give the gift of repentance and you greet us with a person and you greet us with healing. So right now where you're standing, just come and sit by the well with Jesus. What is it that needs healed? What needs transformed? In Jesus, we've been given a new identity. It's not marked by sin or abuse, but it's marked by the spring that flows into eternal life. Jesus wants to reveal himself to us and the spirit wants to fill us. This is a gift. And we're gonna have just a little bit of time to pray. You can pray where you're at. If you wanna raise your hand and and receive prayer from those around you, just go ahead and put your hand up. We're the people of God. And, and if you're near someone who raises their hand, go ahead and just place your hand on them, let them know you're praying for them. But if you have specific areas that you want to share, if you want a space where you, you use your words to vocalize where you need God to heal you, we're gonna have people on the sides who would love 
to just stand in the gap with you as you come before the Father. We can pray together and, and invite this healing work of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you. We just want to praise you for a minute, that you're a God who sees us fully. Nothing is hidden from you. You know who we are. The areas that we don't want to lay down at your feet or invite you into, you are so joyful to be in those spaces with us. So would you do that work right now in our hearts? Lord, help us to be a people who can, can lay our confession at your feet because we know you are a good, trustworthy Father.